This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 384 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show this week, Curtis Anderson. Now, I've had some incredibly powerful stories on this podcast, and Curtis's is absolutely one of the most powerful I've heard to date. He was a professional bull rider, suffered a TBI in one of his rides, and woke up paralyzed to the point he was even unable to swallow. So his incredibly powerful journey from that point back to walking and running and swimming and doing triathlons and then getting his driving license is absolutely unbelievable and needs to be heard by every single person out there. Before we get to that interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single comment and every single five star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether you use it individually, organizationally. All I ask in return is you take a moment and share these incredible men and women's stories. Curtis's, for example, needs to be heard by every single person on planet Earth. So with that being said, I introduce to you Curtis Anderson. Enjoy. 
So Curtis, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. James, I'd like to thank you for having me on the your podcast Behind the Shield. Thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, flexibility of me being a little bit late with this uh, conversation. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? In my house. Beautiful. Which is where, where roughly? It's a small town called Minburn, Alberta. It's about an hour and a half east of Edmonton. All right. So I'd love to start at the very beginning. Um, so tell me, where were you born? And then what did your parents do? I was born in Manville, Alberta. And my dad was a farmer and my mom worked at the CIBC bank. And so did you grow up kind of working with him, uh, living on a farm or were you in a house? No, we're, I've been raised on a farm and, you know, helped doing chores as growing up. And then I started getting some cattle of my own. Brilliant. So when did you first uh, ride a horse? When was the first time you got on? Well, I'm not sure the exact year, but it was young age, I guess. Fantastic. All right. Well, then at, at that age, when you were kind of school age, what were some of the sports that you loved to play? I played lots of hockey and did hockey in the winter. And then as I grew older, when I was about 14, I started going to rodeos and then just start out junior bull riding and then when I was 16, I went into the open. Okay. Now, obviously, as we're going to get into with the story, you turned professional. So what was it when you were younger that made you much better than some of the bull riders that you were training with? Oh, you know, like, I never looked at it like that. I just, you know, my neighbor, he's the one that rode bulls and then I... I liked what he was doing so I thought I'd give it a try and then I guess in time a person's ready to get on some better bulls. <laughs> now obviously there was a, a mental toughness component to bull riding but also to your journey after the accident. Um, so when you look back at your childhood are there any things that spring to mind that you think made you tough mentally as well? I guess when you're working on a farm feeding cattle I mean you you don't quit until the job's done. And you just, I mean, hard work is kind of ingrained in you. And I just took that through the rest of my life. Brilliant. Well, I can relate. I grew up on a farm too. So when, when we'd go to school and we'd look all tired and disheveled, the teachers assumed that we'd been up watching TV or playing video games. And it wasn't. It was lambing or, <laughs> you know, foaling or something like that. So I can relate to that hard work element of farm life. Then I, as I started going to, you know, they started having just bull riding events and I started going to more and more of those as well as some rodeos. Now, at that age, had you dreamed of being a bull rider? Was that your career aspiration? Yeah, like, I mean, I also, you know, I went to rodeos in the summertime and I worked on the drone rigs in the winter and it just... And I had a custom fencing business, so it just kind of went hand in hand that I was able to do one when the other one wasn't going. Yeah, you said you worked on the oil rigs? Yeah. Okay. So so you were, you were grinding summer and winter then? Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, obviously, you had a, you know, the incident in 2002. 
Um, had you had you had any incidents prior, or had you seen any other riders have um, some pretty severe accidents as you were going through your career? Yeah, like I mean, I think up until my accident, I had like it was seven or eight pretty serious concussions. And James, two weeks before my accident, I had a severe concussion at the Ennisvale Rodeo. So my brain, it was already injured to a certain degree. And the two hits I took at the Pinocchio Stampede that day, like I'm living proof what can happen when you go back too soon without letting your brain heal from the first concussion and take another hit. And your brain is most acceptable in the first two weeks. Yeah, and we see that, you know, in, in the military, in, in law enforcement, in obviously professional sports, MMA, football. Um, I think people are just starting to understand that now. I don't know if the science has been there a lot longer than we realized, but you're starting to see protocol now, for example, in the UFC. You know, if there's a concussion injury or a knockout, they have to wait X amount of weeks before they can fight again. Um, kind of what was the discussion of concussion TBIs around that early part of your career. Was there much understanding back then? No, like you never really, I mean, concussions were definitely there, but they weren't talked about. And like when I got hurt, there was only two guys, as far as I know, in Western Canada, that wore a helmet. And now there's probably 95%, but now like I've talked now to the Canadian pro sports medicine team and i don't remember but they told me you know maybe you shouldn't get on but at that you know i was just i couldn't remember i i didn't and this is what happened and i'm living proof i really talk to the young guys now about taking time off and making sure that they're ready to go back well this it parallels a lot um, you know, many areas of my profession as well. And it's funny because the, the headwear is one of the things that is probably a, a good example of what your what you experienced early in your career, where there are, are better versions of our helmet now. They're the European ones, they wrap all the way around your head, they're securely on, you know, fastened under the chin. Um, they're a lot lighter, they, they're a lot smaller, so you're able to actually do a lot more in them. But they're also ridiculed by much of the fire service in the American fire service. And, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of like wearing, asking a Navy SEAL to wear a tin helmet, you know, it's old, old technology and it just doesn't work as well as the modern, you know, equipment that they use. And, and so there's no science behind not wearing a helmet other than just the kind of macho bravado of, well, this one looks cooler. Was that kind of an element with the cowboy hat and uh, bull riding as well, that, that it was just kind yeah. of, it's what you'd always done. Yeah. For like, I mean, for a lot of years and it, in some cases, I mean, it's, that's thing was starting to go away, but it's to the point now where guys are starting with helmets. I mean, they have to start with the helmet and they're just continuing to wear them now. And like you said, the helmets are being made better. And they're starting to get, they're made better and they're a little bit lighter, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is it makes you a better bull rider because if you have one bad head injury, as you know, as you know, more than the most, you know, that can be career ending and even life changing versus a piece of protective equipment that is more advanced than, than we used to wear that's going to enable you to keep riding the bull. So therefore be a better bull rider. 
yeah, and I mean, with the helmet, if you whatever, if you take a shot, you can say get on in the short go, or you can get on the next day. And so it's, I mean, a concussion is never gonna completely take away, or I mean, a helmet is never gonna completely take away a concussion, but it's darn sure gonna help any severity of a brain injury, and it's. I mean, it's living proof how good they are to help. Yeah, well, there's a reason why motorcyclists around the world wear them now. Um, so one, one other kind of parallel sport that is interesting because I know you guys are friends, but I had uh, Clint Malachuk on, and you know he is from the older generation of ice hockey, and that's a perfect yeah. sport to use as an example. You know, they used to wear nothing on their head at all and now obviously that's completely changed seeing how much damage was done from falls from obviously skates in uh, clint's experience and then uh, the puck as well yeah it's it's amazing to see how far hockey has come say like in 100 years and it's when you think back to you know stepping out on that ice with no helmet at all to where it is now it's like Clint you know he told me some stories about when he was going you know and how much more the goalie mask is now and everything yeah exactly and the thing is it's not it's not ridiculing or shaming people with the old philosophy because none of us realized back then even even as young as I am in the fire service you know things have changed in the 14 years that I worked so, but it's just having the humility, I think, to understand that things have changed for the better and it's safer and to kind of let go of, you know, what we think we should be doing, understanding that this is actually going to be better for our own health and better for the sport as well. Yeah, it's, you can never go wrong with technology to make things safer. Absolutely. Well, so let's, let's talk about, you know, your incident then. So, Walk me through June 26th, 2002. Well, I traveled to the Pinocchio Stampede. It was scorching hot outside. And the last thing that I remember was setting my rope on a bull named Real Handy. They opened the gate. I lost my balance. And a boom, boom, my head smashed the bull's head twice. I spent three weeks in a drug-induced coma at the U of A hospital. The first thing that I remember was the ambulance ride over to the Glenrose. I didn't know what had happened and I didn't know where I was going, but I soon realized that I could no longer walk, no longer talk, or move my left arm. And the therapy, I'd start out, the physiotherapist walking alongside me for an hour a day, teaching me how to walk step by step. And then I progressed to walk, wearing a helmet in case of fall. And a year later, I was walking on my own with no assistance and with my left arm. In the beginning, I had to move it with my left or with my right. And I started out passing beanbags from a table to a pail while trying to keep my balance. And with my speech, I started out writing down things in a scribbler to communicate. And then I started pronouncing vowels and then vowels into words. And I started out with a feeding tube, period food, then diced food chopped up in a little pieces, 
and I'll be able to cut my own steak. I started out with ice chips, thickened water, and now the real stuff. That's amazing. So, so as you said, you were you were in a coma, a drug-induced coma for three weeks. So when yeah. you when you first came to, like, what was your, what did you say to yourself, realizing that you'd lost everything at that point? You'd lost your speech, you'd lost your movement, you'd lost even the ability to swallow. Um, you know, what what was your self-talk at that point? I remember, I still have the scribbler. I wrote down, you have a lot of work ahead of you. And I also wrote down, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just have a look around. There's someone in tougher shape. And you soon realize how strong you are and what you're made of. It was like being a baby at 27 years old. Like my slate was completely clean. It's, I mean, I, I, it's absolutely incomprehensible to most of us what that must be like to, to literally wake up, like you said, you know, just starting from scratch again. Would you remember one of the first uh, wins, one of the first uh, goals that you actually achieved right off from the very beginning? Well, the first first thing that I did to regain my independence is when I was able to make my own transfers from my bed to my chair. Then I was it, then able to take myself to therapy and for my meals. And that was a big step to gain back. Beautiful. And then um, with the speech, I mean, I mean, how were you able to, and with swallowing as well, how were you able to start fostering the uh the ability to swallow properly to speak i mean what was that journey like for you well with that with the swallowing like you know they'd give you a test like say every few weeks to see where you're at see if you can keep fluids down and but i remember like when i was on ice chips there at the beginning and uh, the day I was able to drink water again. That was a very big day to have back. Now, with the actual injury itself, so as you said, it wasn't a fall. It was actually your head hitting the actual bull's head twice. So you were kind of ragdolled while yeah. still on the ball. What was the uh, the diagnosis? Had you actually had bleeding in the brain? You know, what what were the? Well, yeah, there was. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There was. They had to do a craniectomy. There was bleeding in the brain. There was, like, if I had the list right now, it would take probably five minutes to read. It was, and on the Glasgow scale, which starts at 15 and goes down to three, I was number three. So that is as low as you can go. So I was an extremely severe traumatic brain injury survivor. Well, I still am. Absolutely. So you so you had a piece of your skull removed because of the the swelling and everything, and you had to have that protected for a while too. No, they never had to take no skull or like it was more a lot of bleeding, a lot of bleeding. Okay, but they were able to drain it just just from a tube. Yeah. Okay. They they put shunts. They inserted shunts to control the swelling there right at the beginning. 
Beautiful. Well, then and tell me about the, the journey to walking. Because I mean, now, you know, you're, you're posting videos of you running. I want to talk about the triathlon that you did. So you're an, you know, absolute inspiration, the journey you've come on. But, but I'm assuming walking was a big milestone for you. So what was that journey like? Well, walking, like right at the beginning, you know, the physical therapist, like for an hour a day, she would walk right by my side and teach me how to walk in it. I remember it was your cane, left foot, and then right. And for an hour over and over, and there would be an assistant walking behind me with the wheelchair, just so I could take a break once in a while. And it was a big, big deal to walk 20 feet without stopping. And I mean, on June 14th, I walked 19.8 miles, but I mean, with my walk and like, and then when I came home from the hospital, I, I'd walk a mile a day on the gravel road and then I worked myself up to two miles a day. But like there at the beginning, I'd be packing my kind of my left arm up with my hip. But then I realized, you know, well, I need to get some coordination going. So I worked hard, you know, to have a natural walking pattern and then I ride a stationary bike, you know, quite a bit. And that's just like a natural walking pattern. And if I'm not paying attention, my left foot wants to drift out a bit. But, like, I have to pay attention to every step I take. And my left arm, it still wants to drift up. But I'm able to make a conscious effort to keep it down. And my walking's getting a lot smoother and smoother. Now, one thing I've noticed from reading the the few articles and obviously watching the videos and talking to you um, is you seem to be very good at goal setting. And what I mean by that is even, even in some of the interviews you've done, you talked about walking with a cane with, with four legs, you know, the, the frame, then walking with a cane with a single cane. So how were you able to plan, you know, and stick to these, these uh, micro achievements and then obviously have an understanding of where that would take you as far as a long-term goal? Well, like right from the beginning, James, I just said to myself, you know, I want to get better. And you just, like, I don't watch any TV. And you just, your focus, your whole life for, for me is just recovery and what I can do to get better. Because the biggest thing with, with recovery is you'll keep getting better as long as you want to. So, I mean, the window's there to get better. I'll just keep going and just see how far I can take this. Yeah, and you still are. And it's funny, you, you told me you walked 19.98 miles. Is that what you said? 19.8 miles on June 14th. Point eight. They couldn't just round it up to 20? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it, it's not just walking you've done, though. So tell me about swimming. Because, again, recovering from an injury like that, and, and as you just detailed, you know, having to work very deliberately to get each of your limbs to move the way that you want them to how was that journey immersing yourself or or, you know leading towards immersion in water when you've got again all that confidence all that ability that you had before has been taken away yeah like i remember when i was at the hell of a johnson center for brain injury in pinoca that i had there was a lifeguard and she would walk right beside me in the pool like for hours upon hours teach me how to swim again. 
And then I like that. I started out with a life jacket, and then I just gradually over time got better, and I was able then to go swimming on my own. But when I came home, I went swimming. And then one thing about being in the pool, I mean, there's so many exercises you can do because there's no restriction of your body. It just it's one of the best exercises. Yeah, so, so the weight-bearing element of water allowed you to do a lot more in the water then? Yeah, for sure. Beautiful. Now, Clint um, talked a lot about, obviously, some of the, the mental health challenges he had following his injury. Um, did you have any struggles? I mean, you sound like you're very, very positive now. Um, how, would, how did it hit you mentally during this time? Well, I mean, well, you wake up one day and you realize you know every single thing every step of independence that you had the day before or before it happened is completely gone and everything you did in life is gone right at the moment but you it's just you have to number one you have to focus that you want to get better right at the beginning you know there's there's reality of what happened and that you survived such a traumatic event. And then I'd say the next phase, you have to let go of who you were. And the one of the next phases is just realize that if I work hard and stay focused and determined that I can regain some of that independence. But I mean, there's, there's some days, you know, like one day the frustration for me was building up. And I got, whenever I got mad as heck and I threw my cane on the top of the roof. And then I looked there and realized, well, that sure did a lot of good. <laughs> cane to walk. But then, yeah, it's realizing that you're a survivor and just that it, Test how strong you are and how focused you can be. I mean, some days are definitely better than others, but then good days outshine the tough ones. And, you know, some days, say if they're tough now, you look back to that first year or first six months and realize just how much strength that you had to overcome every step, you know, walking, talking, left arm, and draw from that strength to keep going and one of the biggest supports now is when people see you in public and they comment on say it's my speech being clear or just different progress that I'm making that is one of the biggest things that help carry a person along as having support I mean there's a quote it says people may not remember what you said or did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And to hear people comment on your progress, that's a, that's a light. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love that quote as well, and I agree 100%. Um, you mentioned before, let go of who you were. And that's very interesting. I just finished a book called um, When Breath Becomes Air. And that was actually a neurosurgeon who was just about to graduate from his residency. 
uh, seemed like you know one of those genius uh, medical people, uh, but he had uh, a brain tumor and lung cancer. So he ended up passing away. And before he did, he wrote this beautiful book. But that was the same thing that he talked about is the way his story had been written was I'm going to be this amazing neurosurgeon. I'm going to work in the educational field too. And I'm going to be this, you know, this this is the path that I've made for for myself in my mind. And then he had this diagnosis and he talks about the same thing. It was letting go of the story he told himself that was going to be the rest of his life and understanding that that's now an unwritten element and he has to rewrite it in a different way. And so when you said that, that, that seemed very powerful, whether it's a terminal diagnosis, whether it's a you know, a TBI, or in, in my case, when it was a divorce, you know, my my original story was that I marry this woman, and we have, you know, a child, and then we stay together, and that's it. Well, that didn't work out. So I had to rewrite that story in my mind, too. So I think that philosophy that you just said, is a very, very important thing for us to understand is, when you hit one of those hurdles, don't think that you have to adhere to what your anticipation of your life was because it's just going to turn a page and open a new chapter for you. And James, like determination, dedication, try, grit, courage, confidence, commitment, resilience, tenacity, perseverance, optimism, strength, and the most important patience is a choice until it is the only choice that you have. And you'll never know how strong you are until your back is against the wall, never. Yeah, I love that and you're walking proof of that and it's amazing. Well, speaking of that, tell me about the St. Albert Triathlon. Well, there's a friend from home, Chris Hatch and Justin Natras. We did a triathlon in St. Albert and I did the running part and I did five kilometers in 59 minutes. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing, running on pavement's a heck of a lot harder than running on gravel. But it's, you know, there ain't many people that get out and do a triathlon, but I did. And it darn sure makes you feel good because you, you look back at where, you know, you start learning how to walk step by step, and then here you are today doing a triathlon. It's pretty. It is very rewarding, and it and it's amazing how many other runners that were with me, how much support they gave like on the trail. And I remember Justin Natchez. He came out and run the last mile with me, you know, just encouraging me. And like I was the last one to come in, but all the other runners and all the other triathletes, they uh, they were there at the finish line, cheering me on. So that was a pretty good feeling. No, I'm sure. And it's interesting with the triathlon. I just interviewed a, a young man a few weeks ago, Chris Nikic, and he's about to be the first uh, young man with Down syndrome to ever do the Ironman triathlon. Wow. And then, and then there's another man, uh, Dick Hoyt. I don't know if you've ever seen him on TV, but he's the one who pushes his son, who um, you know is is very severely disabled um, physically, yeah. uh, through the races or through triathlons. So he'll swim with him on a boat, and you know push him on the uh, the running portion, and then they have like a little tandem bike for the the cycling part. 
but again i mean it this this all these people yourself included that show us the rest of the world like hey just because you don't fit this mold anymore doesn't mean that you can't get out there and, and achieve all these incredible goals yourself no you you darn sure make do with what you have absolutely well um speaking of uh you know events i just want to talk about this as well so the first responders rodeo tell me about that and then the paramedic that you met because that's an incredible story yeah that was one of the, there was a man i went to the first responders rodeo in saint albert and then Greg Wanko, he was the paramedic that put the intravenous on me in the arena that day. And I was behind the chutes and I met up with Greg. And I remember the first thing that I told him over and over, I said, you know, thank you for saving my life. And Greg was pretty humble. He just said, well, I was just doing my job. So we, we talked a bit. I mean, we still talk. But he told me that about a man named Rob McKenzie. He was the other one of the other paramedics that day. And Rob was a is a cop in Calgary now. So I phoned the Calgary Police Department and see if I can get a hold of Rob. And he phoned me up one day and I said, Rob, I have something that I want you to hear. And the first speech I wrote was called Road Recovery and I gave him that speech. And, you know, the first thing he said to me was that sense chills up my spine. But then last summer at the Pinocchio Stampede, I got to meet Rob well, for the first time. And again, you know, the first thing I said to him was, thank you for saving my life. And I got a hold of the Pinocchio Stampede president was Blair Vold. And I told them that me and Rob were going to be that day, be there that day. So they arranged for me and Rob to ride in a wagon pulled by a team of horses. And I had a microphone and I just said, Rob, on behalf of my family, friends and I, I'd like to thank you for saving my life. And Rob was actually sitting in the crowd that day I got hurt. And he came out of the stands to intubate me so I could start breathing again. And it's pretty powerful. When you could shake hands with the man that gave you an opportunity to live. That's incredible. I mean, it really is, especially to to not even be on duty and then to be the kind of responder who's taken their job so seriously that, you know, they they are able to jump into action with someone else's equipment and, and save a life right there in the rodeo. So I, I think, you know, Amla utmost respect to Rob for, for being that kind of responder that was ready when he was called upon too. And Rob told me like now he said two weeks before the, well, the rodeo, he took an advanced course so that he could intubate me. And he said, like, you know, good thing that I took that course and I was able to intubate you there right at the rodeo. So it's amazing how things worked out. No, it is absolutely. But they get you know. This is a, a a thing that I talk about a lot on the show. Is you know how important training is, and what if he had been there and hadn't taken his job seriously, you could well have died on the rodeo floor. Yeah, very. Absolutely. Well, speaking of rodeos, I know you're you're involved in a lot now, more from a a judging and um, uh, speech element now. So tell me about that. What, what's your interaction with the rodeo community these days? Well. I speak at about a half a dozen bull ridings and I 
And I talk to the guys a lot one-on-one and just tell them my story and just, you know, I'm living proof what happens when you go back too soon. And a couple of years ago, there was a dad, he come and told me, I want, my son is still wearing a helmet because of you. And that's pretty hard to put into words. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, I'm helping making a difference with the helmets, you know, and the biggest thing is just letting guys know awareness and how serious a concussion can be. No, absolutely. Now, like I said earlier, with, with my community, there is that that push against progress. I mean, there really is in some areas and they call it tradition. I, I disagree completely. It's history. It's very different in tradition. Tradition is brotherhood yeah. and compassion and kindness and um, you know, fortitude and grit, those are traditions in the fire service. But um, how were you able to overcome that mentality of, you know, wearing a helmet as being a pussy or, you know, all these other things that I'm sure you've been told? Well, like now, James, the kids, they have to start wearing a helmet and like, you know, say 14 and under, and they just continue to wear them now. And so it's, it's becoming more, natural that just everyone does and i talked to a man named brandon tommy he's with the canadian pro sports medicine team and i asked him you know how are the how is the head trauma and he he said guys are getting a lot better they're just taking themselves at a you know say the next rodeo the, on their own said have been have to be told that's brilliant. So they're seeing a reduction then in, in injuries overall in that sport. Well, yeah, it's come down, but I mean, there's, it's still a big number. All right. Well then, um, I think another very powerful, you know, part of your story is getting your driver's license because again, from waking up and having no ability to move pretty much any part of your body to regaining your driving license, which must give you an incredible sense of uh, you know, independence and mobility again. That must have been a pretty powerful moment for you. That would have been the biggest step of independence. And then in order to get one, it's called a, you have to go to the hospital called Glen Rose. I was there with my rehab and do a driver's assessment. And you do an in-house test and then you take, they take you out like on a road test. But I mean, they they took me smack down town Edmonton, and with the like when you come back from a brain injury, things are happening like hundred times as fast, and you're only allowed to take that test once a year. And I mean, I failed that test four times or three times, and then I had a different instructor that took me down a quieter road. And when I first started driving again, to have the radio on was too much distraction. And to drive an hour was a big deal. But I can drive fair distance now, and daytime driving is a lot better. But to be able to sit behind the steering wheel and go on your own when you want, where you want, that's, you know, it's hard to put it into words, but that was the last step you know, towards independence. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Now, um, one thing I haven't asked you about yet, tell me about the, the Courage Canada trail ride. 
Well, 2004, I started the Courage County the Trail Ride to support brain injury awareness. And it was, you know, started to put brain injury on the map, but also to give survivors a chance to be around horses and the sunshine. And we have wagons available for the survivors to ride in. And there's survivors that come from Lloyd Minister, Vermillion, and Vegreville. And a lot of the same survivors come back year after year. And it's a fundraiser. So the money that we give to those centers, it pays for the survivors to go on the field trip the next year, but it also pays for survivors to go on field trips throughout the year. So it's more than one day. And I stop at the centers and, you know, that's one of the first things they comment is how much fun they had at the trail ride. So it, it makes you feel good giving survivors a chance to take part in a ride. And then some of the money that goes to the health for Johnson Center for brain injury, it helps purchase therapy equipment. And then we have a silent auction. Like we have a supper and a silent live auction that night and a dance. And the money we raised from the silent auction this year, we're giving it to the Veterans Food Bank in Calgary. So it's, you know, helping veterans out that help us out. That's incredible. Now, with um, with, with several people I had on the show, um, a couple of, of healing elements, whether it's overcoming injury, whether it's the mental health side, um, comes from animals, whether it's the, you know, therapy dog or equine therapy. So with you being in, in the horse world yourself, have you observed the kind of connection between some of these people that come on the trail ride, ride and the horses having a healing uh, element to it as well? Yeah, and James, when I was in therapy, I took a six-week therapeutic riding course up by Red Deer. And just, for me, just the smell of a horse is therapeutic or just being around them. But at that time, I was just starting to walk more and more. So it really helped with my balance and just, it gave you something to look forward to and it'll give you something to look back on and horses. And then now, okay, I can brush the horse with my left arm. So it's also, you know, therapy as well, like for my left arm to get better. Yeah, I can imagine. Absolutely. I mean, there is there's so many elements to it. Just like you said, grooming and stabling a horse is, is an entire skill set in itself. Um, so what about long term? You know, you've talked about all these goals that you've set and crushed up to this point, including walking 20 miles and running 5K. So what are some of the long term goals you set for yourself now? I really want to start speaking. I would like to travel around one day. You know, I'd like to travel, say, around the world, sharing my story and raising awareness and just getting out there more and more so that it does make an impact on a larger scale. And it's like, I mean, I spoke at a, a steer riding school this past weekend in Rimby and I talked to some of the boys the next day. And I mean, these kids are like 10 to 13 years old. And I asked them what they liked about my speech and they said everything. And they told me that, yeah, you taught us to never give up. 
So, I mean, that's, if that's the message they're taking home, it's pretty, makes you feel pretty proud. No, absolutely. And you should be. I mean, like I said, you are absolutely an inspiration and coming from um, a sport that's already known for, you know, rugged, tough men and women. But that's, you know, you've worked your way up physically to that point. But then after the incident, it was a completely different test. And it was definitely from within then. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that your story would be anything but inspiring to most people that will watch. Yeah, then I spoke at the Pinoka Elementary School last spring. And there was a seven-year-old boy walk up to me and say, I want to thank you for never giving up. To hear those words from a seven-year-old, that goes straight to your heart. That's absolutely beautiful. And then young children have the, the deepest honesty, so you know that came from the heart. Yeah. And I spoke at another school in Vermillion, and there was a boy that rode his bike to school every day. And at the end of that day, the boy inspected his helmet and realized it was unsafe to wear. He walked his bike home from school. I mean, to know my story made that much of an impact. It's pretty hard to put words on. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So with, with the stories and the speeches that you're doing now, what is the message that you want to get out there as far as, I mean, obviously the helmets, but just, you know, TBI in general? Never to take concussion serious and give yourself rest. I mean, a, a broken arm is six weeks and a brain is forever. There's nothing worth rushing yourself back for. And just to show like say with my speaking at centers or just anywhere in general, it's just to show people what can happen if you never give up. I mean, this spring I was, I did 19 one-arm push-ups, and that, it just, I mean, I can't do two forearm push-ups, but I can do one and it just shows what you can do if you're deter determined. No, I couldn't agree more. And I've had so many people on here, um, you know, that were either burned, you know, and had injuries that way and lost lost a limb or they were veterans and they had, you know, IEDs or were shot or whatever it was, you know, all these challenges. And it took them away from the um, fully functioning athletic life that they had before. And they just reframed it. So people like we need to hear people like you. There's a, there's a lot of. um uh, excuse making and weak weak kind of mentality out there being nurtured at the moment you know and and i think that we need to hear from these people that that show us that no you it's not about not having excuses it's about you take whatever you've been given today and you maximize it and you know if you're lacking inspiration then just look around because there are so many amazing people like yourself and like so many others that have been on the show that show us, you know, that you can, not that you can't, that you absolutely can. I mean, like I said, a, da a boy with Down syndrome is about to smash that stigma in two weeks' time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just so inspiring to see someone who, you know, I'm sure from the initial observation was going to be in a near vegetative state 
to be running triathlons and <laughs> you know driving around town so i think it's incredible and that's one of the another big things is acceptance and realizing that life it's not a matter of holding good cards but making the most of the hand that you have been dealt for 18 years i have played my hand and i know the bottom line there is no such thing as I can't with any challenge that either you or I face in life. Beautiful, I absolutely love that. Now, what about um, from a uh, spiritual side? Did you lean into any sort of uh, spiritual philosophy? What What was your um, your kind of higher power, if any, that you lent into? Oh, I mean, definitely God played a part being there that day, and it's. You find comfort knowing that there's someone that'll walk with you and just you know now like say that i'm out speaking you know you're out sharing your story with others and helping others and you know in a way you know i'm not doing his work but sharing my story it's just, it's hard to put, you know, exact words on, but, you know, definitely God's have been in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that little seven-year-old was a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, that day is just, there's the, one of the ladies that was there that day, a teacher, she wrote down what Connor said on a piece of paper. And I mean, this was two years ago. And I still have that piece of paper above my, in my car, above the sunscreen or the, and I take it out and look at it and just, it gives you strength. You know, that seven year old still gives me strength today. And it still makes me feel good. I'm sure. I am sure. It's funny, actually, one of the, some of the most powerful letters that i got or notes or feedback as a, a paramedic weren't from pulling someone from a burning building or you know a crashed car they were just you know people whose whose life you change just from being kind just from impacting that way or inspiring you know so yeah i mean those are the most heartfelt ones in my opinion there was i spoke at another school in strathmore and i seen one of the boys in the fall and i asked them how did my speech go over and he told me that 20 kids start wearing a helmet all the time on their bikes to school. I mean, that's just, you know, just a good feeling, I guess. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about speaking. So before I go to some closing questions, if people want to reach out, if they want to learn more, if they want to even um, you know, get you to come speak with them, where's the best place to find you online? Well, I'm Curtis Anderson six on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn and my phone number, it's 780-581-4802. And you can call me anytime if you want to share your story or ask me questions about my journey. Go ahead and call. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Curtis. I appreciate you putting those out there. Um, so I want to go to some closing questions that I ask uh, every single guest that comes on here. 
The first one is, is there a book that you've read that you love to recommend to other people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. There's one called Stay in the Game. I think it's by Van Gogh. I'm not, you know, don't quote me on that, but it, the book is called Stay in the Game. And it gave me lots of good advice or, you know, and then others. Oh, I'm reading one now by a soldier. I forget his name, but it's the courage that he showed. And you know, you can draw you can draw courage from others to help you along. I mean, when someone else can do it, there's no reason why you can't do it. Absolutely. We're all just people at the end of the day. All right, well then, what about a film? Any any movies that you love, either documentaries or, you know, regular movies? Uh, you know what, James, to tell you the truth, I don't know what it is, but, like, you know, since the accident, to watch a movie, it's just, it's just so much going on, and it's kind of, like, overstimulating. But I, you know, I... I watched quite a few documentaries on Clinton Larchuk, and I mean, the road he has walked, I mean, you can draw strength from and inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. If no one's heard Clint's story, um, he was on the podcast here. Like I've seen his documentary. It's amazing. But yeah, that's a, a very powerful story of, of a man who, again, was a an alpha male in an alpha profession that that took a path that took him completely down a you know another area which was mental health so yeah it's a very very powerful story an amazing human being all right well then next question um is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world well there's a man his name is scott mcdermott he's from Silver lake alberta and scott was only one of 40 he was in Ultramans. They're twice the distance of an Ironman. And in 2015, he was in Hawaii. And he had a, he was on his bike. Then he was coming up to a bridge. But anyways, his bike cartwheeled. And he had a traumatic brain injury. He had a broken arm, collarbone. They had to reconstruct his shoulder. And in three years... I mean, there's only 40 athletes that can go in them Ultramans or that are in good enough shape. In three years, Scott was in another Ultraman. And I mean, I've heard Scott talk a couple of times and he is definitely a miracle in motion. Sounds like another amazing human being. But yeah, to return to that level of competition is incredible. All right. Well, then next question is um, what do you do to decompress? So when you're not speaking and not, um, you know, challenging yourself with these physical accomplishments. Oh, horseback riding, it just, it, everything seems to go away. When you're on the back of a horse, it's just, yes, well, you and the horse and nature. And I'm starting to, you know, do breathing, but one of the biggest things, that helped me kind of is riding a stationary bike. And it's, 
well, for one thing, it's getting you in shape, but it's you can help on goal setting. Like the other day I did, when I first started this journey, or I mean, not this journey, but a year ago, I wanted to ride my stationary bike from Vancouver all across Canada. And I just kept track of the miles on the calendar. And then 71 days, I've gone 1,946 miles. I'm about three hours now from Toronto. And it just, the best I've done is 18.9 miles an hour. And when I first started this bike ride, it took me two hours to do 30 miles, but with not near as much tension. Like I go at a good tension for a mile, then add a bar for a mile, then add a bar for a mile, and just keep switching around. And it's it's pretty rewarding, you know, to see how much you can get done or how much tension you can do. And it, it that helps to unwind you just for me anyways. Brilliant. Now, do you have one of those screens that, that kind of gives you the, the kind of version of the road as you're cycling, or is it just a bike in the room? It's just the bike in the room. I just sit in my Porsche do it, and then, like, I have the bike in front of a window, and, you know, they say, I looked it up, and the scenery, you know, whether it's green grass or trees, it simulates your brain as well. So it's no, I love that. that. Yeah, that's amazing. Because Nick, um, the, uh, yeah, the uh, sorry, Chris, the young young man with Down syndrome, he has the full setup where he's got the kind of road bike and it clips into this this uh, stand, and then he's got this computer screen. So he's literally cycling with these virtual people around him. However, like you were saying, that was probably overwhelming, especially if if you have a TBI. Whereas actually being in nature, I think, is probably his preferred. Um, environment so it's interesting that you just put the bike in front of a window and then you get that nature kind of element to it as well yeah beautiful all right well then let me just kind of underline as well uh, again where people can find you uh so you said at curtis anderson six on instagram yeah and i'm on linkedin as well and then they can reach out to me at 780-581-4802 call anytime brilliant all right well well curtis thank you for that and i just want to say thank you for taking the time i know we've been talking for a while now and that we were hoping to do this face-to-face in canada but obviously thanks to the covid19 that has put a, a spanner in the works there but it's been a great conversation i really appreciate you being so generous with your time and telling your story today well james i'd like to thank you for having me on your podcast, Mind the Shield, to help raise awareness and share my story. And one day, maybe we could speak together or see each other in person. <laughs>